Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. Neil deGrasse Tyson here, your personal astrophysicist. And I got Chuck Nice with me, as usual. Chuck, baby. Hey, Neil, what's happening? All right, very good, very good. You know, we got a really deep subject today. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Which is why I was trying to figure out why I'm here. Oh. <laughs> when I saw the actual uh, copy for the show, I was, I was like, I think they got the... Did I receive this by mistake this email? Right. <laughs> using, using forensic science to identify missing soldiers. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Very important and, work. And, and of course, I mean, why wouldn't this be a thing, right? I mean, you know, we got forensics for crime. We got, right. you know, we got DNA for, for exoneration. And yeah. it seems like there's a lot of bits and pieces there. You put it all together in one sort of scientific chemistry, biology uh, 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 work universe, and so the Department of Defense has an entire branch of itself that specializes in just this. And we've got two guests today who will take us deep into what those operations are, how they work, and what their success rates are, and they'll just just keep us up to date on what has been happening over these recent years as it tracks the progress of science. And leading off, we've got Dr. Tim McMahon. Tim, welcome to Star Talk. Neil, thank you. Chuck, nice to meet you as well. It's, uh, it's an honor for me to be here and chat with you on DNA. Excellent, thank you. You're a biomedical scientist and director of the DOD, Department of Defense, DNA Operations. So of course that's gotta be a thing. So, for, so first- it's very tell men me- in black, Tim, I gotta tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'll get I'll give you men in blue since blue suits are my favorite. So we'll okay. go with men in oh, blue. Uh, oh, right <laughs> and and also uh, for those who can see this in video, um, uh, Tim is wearing a, a vibrant red tie. So that right. it, that's not men in black uniform for sure. Uh, but let me ask uh, the the Defense Prisoner of War and Missing in Action Accounting Agency. That's a mouthful. What can you tell us about that? So the DPAA. Um, is actually they're the organization that is in charge with the recovery and identification of the missing service members. Um, I, uh, my organization is the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System, and we're actually partnered with the DPAA. Uh, we actually provide all DOD with human remains DNA identification. So not only for the past accounting mission, where we help the DPA identify our fallen heroes from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and the Cold War, but also all of our current day losses as well. And, you know, you were talking about DNA and crime. You know, the first time DNA was used in a criminal case was in 1987 in England. In 1991, the military used DNA for the first time to assist with the identification of a service member from Vietnam but also with current day losses at the, cl- at the close of Operation Desert Storm or the first Gulf War, that actually set up our laboratory 
and established the DNA laboratory under the Armed Forces Medical Examiner system. But excuse me, it's not just uh, remains in a bat in a battlefield. There are places where where fallen soldiers have been buried anonymously, right? We think of you know the beaches of Normandy. I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, Korea, Cambodia, Vietnam. Not every place is just here's a box of remains. Go to work. It's got to be more complicated than that, isn't it? It, it is much more complicated. Um, and my uh, cohort at the DPAA, uh, Dr. Franklin Damon, who you'll be chatting with, uh, he will be able to give you a much more in-depth uh, on that. But they, we, we are mandated uh, by the United States government. You know, we we leave no man behind, and so. Um, the, uh, there's been active recoveries, uh, for example, for Vietnam since the uh, close of the Vietnam War, um, and then with Korea and World War II. But for example, in our own cemetery, uh, in the uh, National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Hawaii, there are unknown service members who were recovered but could not be identified. The Those are the DNA samples for one set of uh, types of remains called disinterments that come to my lab that we will test uh, and, and and obtain the DNA out of those and then run uh, a couple of different tests on them. But unlike a modern crime scene where, for example, if I committed a crime, they could take a swab from my cheek and they could do that direct reference that way. We don't have that ability. So we actually have to rely on family members to donate samples to us that we can then compare to these unknowns to assist with the identification effort. So when you exhume, well, I, I, I suppose you don't need to exhume an entire body because if it's DNA, you only need a sample. And then what do you do from there? You create a database or do you create a familial database and then work backwards? So th that's a, that, Chuck, that's actually an excellent question. Um, we, we have proactively been collecting references since 1992. So, for example, for the original 8100 missing at the end of the Korean War, I have family references in a database for 92% of those missing. So, we do have that family reference database. For Vietnam, we're at about 86%. Uh, and then World War II was recently added in about 2010 Um and so we have about 18% of the original 72,000 missing. Um, but if you look at, for example, the USS Oklahoma. But just to be clear, U.S. Oklahoma, uh, that's in Pearl Harbor. So December 7th, 1941, the ship sank with servicemen inside the ship entombing them. Is right. that, if I understand this correctly. Okay. And, and then the ship was righted and those remains were recovered and they were interred in the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific as unknowns. In my lab, we received uh, 363 out of 394 references. So we had references for 363 of those, which once you start getting really over 80% coverage, DNA becomes a strong supporting line of evidence for identification. But Chuck, to answer your question, when we disinter, you're going to hear from my esteemed colleagues uh, all about the excellent work that they do. And it's not just DNA. DNA is one means of identification. It's about 
all of the information coming together. For example, there's stature, which is anthropology, and there's dental, and and there's historical evidence and things like that. So it's about building the full picture. I'm just one cog in that picture, which is the DNA portion of it. Oh, and, okay. Uh, but how do you? But so when normally when we think of bones, we don't think of DNA. We right. think of, like you said, cheek samples or skin samples, or so. But uh, there is sort of living was living tissue inside of bones uh, at at some point in their history. Is that where you get the DNA? Because otherwise, the calcium I don't think would be very helpful. <laughs> no. So you're you're absolutely right. So um, the the actual um, osteocytes, which is the formal word for the the, the DNA containing cells within the bone that DNA is protected. And so we actually can take a portion of the bone and grind that bone up into a powder. And then we add a buffer to it. Um, we call it demineralization buffer. It's a big word, but I want you to think of turpentine. If you drop turpentine on the hood of your car, you dissolve that paint completely. Well, this- Well, well do I know that? <laughs> so that buffer dissolves that bone powder completely and frees up all of the DNA. But when we do that, in that liquid now is not only the human DNA, there's bacterial DNA, there's fungal DNA, anything that was in the environment that could have soaked into that bone as well over time. Wow. And so we have to, we have to purify the DNA. And what I tell people the most is you think about that last cup of coffee nobody wants to drink of all the grinds in it. Yeah. If you were to pass that coffee back through a filter, the grinds would stay on top and you get the pure coffee. Well, we have a specialized filter that the DNA binds to and we can wash away everything we don't want. But then we have Which this- way, just, that's, being, that's being very clever. I mean, yep. presumably you didn't have that initially and someone said, I have an idea. Uh, I have DNA- Velcro, okay? Yeah. And so, right. and so, no, this, I mean, you know, you're speaking like, yeah, this is there, but oh my gosh, people yeah, are inventing this stuff all along. And it, it is. So the earliest point that, you know, DNA was identified was the 1950s. It was in the 60s that the first purification methods came out, but it wasn't that filter didn't come around until 1984. And now we can actually use magnets, we can bind the DNA to a special particle and then use a magnet to pull the DNA out of it. It's, oh, I it's hear crazy more how about it changes. That. That's that's just okay. That's sci-fi insane right there. <laughs> so, oh, please do just that process for a second. Uh, you know, uh, and then Neil can tell me: Can you magnetize anything? No, I, I'm going to presume Tim means that it's a chemical magnet and magnet is metaphorical. I'm going to assume that, Tim. Correct? No, so actually... Oh, ow! Okay, don't say anymore because you, you're top secret clearance here. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, it's a small sphere that is charged and it it then has a, it, it has a, uh, a special binding agent that allows the DNA to bind to it based on a charge. And because it's metal, you can then hold a magnet against the side of the tube and that pulls the, the that metal sphere with the DNA to it, and then we can wash away everything else, and then you rehydrate the DNA at that point, and that breaks the bond off of that sphere, and you get the pure DNA. Oh my, that's crazy! Okay, it's called science. I, it is called science, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, and no disrespect to the process or the importance of it, but they do the same thing with cocaine. 
<laughs> are you serious? I'm yeah. dead serious. Okay. <laughs> it, 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 it is a chemical process, you yeah. know. And the easiest way I tell people is, you know, when we grew up, there was that that little um, that little toy that looked like the face, and you had the magnet, had the make the ferrous metal in there, and you could draw the beard on it. Yeah, and that's what we're doing. Is you're basically buying the DNA and then putting a magnet and pulling it out that way. Fascinating. So yeah, and, and Chuck, I I didn't. I didn't know that about cocaine, you know. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I it's, no I mean it's not exactly that because, you know, uh, as much money as, you know, these drug dealers have, they don't they don't want to spend it on science. Well, uh, all I know <laughs> is that drug dealers were metric fluent before anyone in the United States was. And so... That's true. <laughs> they're selling kilos and things. That, that is a true statement. <laughs> so, Tim, is there a... I know there's a lot of research not only in private industry, but also in the DOD. So who is leading the DNA frontier today? Is, is it your, your kind of research because you've got deep government pockets for that? Or is it 23andMe, right? Where, because that's, a, because that's a co an entire commercial enterprise that's driven by market forces. So, uh, Neil, that's a great question. It's actually a combination of both. So when you, uh, so we do the exact same tests at your state and local and the FBI do for criminal casework because any unidentified human remains that are found in the local fall underneath your local police jurisdiction. So that's where you see they're using these commercial tests. And now you see through investigative, what's called investigative genetic genealogy, where they're able to utilize uh, uh, what we call direct-to-consumer companies where they can then use, build off of the 23andMe and Ancestry.com and guide police uh, into identifying either a cold case perpetrator of a crime or an unknown person who died and they had no way forward. The difference is those are geared toward modern DNA samples. These are DNA samples that have been protected over the years. We have to take either what's been commercially developed, break it and make it work for ours that have been in the environment 80 plus years, have seen chemical insults from being uh, prepared for burial or from post-traumatic fire from a crash in an airplane, or in a lot of it, I call it fit for use. We have to develop that test. So the police and the 23andMe, they're collecting samples for the purposes of identification and uh, lineage, whereas you guys have to create that yourself. Right. So what, what, what the police do is if you have a cold case and they've isolated DNA, let's say from an unknown human remain. So this is an individual that was found in the woods. The police get it. They develop a profile. They then search the FBI's missing person database. It doesn't hit to it. The investigators have no leads. It's now a cold case. They can work with companies like Orthrum and Parabond and a lot of other direct-to-consumer companies out there to develop this, what we call a single nucleotide polymorphism profile, which is your ancestry markers, your identity markers. And then they can search uh, JetMatch, which is an, a, a searchable database, and they can identify potential leads of who this person may be. And then the police investigators will investigate, they will find. And then if they find a reference, they will collect a reference from that person, match it, and then make an identification so that way. So every day that goes by, the database gets better 
for everybody. In, in, in the commercial sector, yes. The more people that get in there, the better the database gets. But for our case, we, we have already developed that database, but those commercial assays won't work with ours. So for example, what I tell people is if you, and I'm a knuckle dragger from, from being a mechanic when I was younger in, in school is, I was there when we switched from standard sockets to metric sockets. Whoa! No, right. yeah. Yeah. And so I, I hear know, the that, drug dealers had that same kind of. Uh, they did. Conundrum. You know, they did. They had to start figuring out how to go from pounds to kilos. <laughs> so, but you know, if you have a standard socket that's a seven sixteenth, a ten millimeter may work on it once, but then it will strip it. And so, what we have to do is we have to make that test to work. So for example, the chemically treated sample. So at the end of the Korean War, uh, as part of Operation Glory, the United States received uh, about 4,000 sets of remains. About 850 of those could not be identified. They were buried in the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Hawaii as unknowns. When the DPA went in disinterred, we could not get a DNA result from them. And it took 16 years in science to catch up. But in 2016, we de developed and validated a method that allowed us to get DNA results from it using what we call next generation sequencing. That's those instruments that you hear about personalized medicine. Yeah, yeah. And so we adapted, we adapted from the medical side, brought it in, created a test that is not commercially available and since 2016, we've gone from seven samples a month to over 70 samples a month and went from a 20% success rate to over 68% success rate just with that. And it's led to over 200, and, uh, over 200 new identifications for people who previously would not have worked because the commercial test like 23andMe and Ancestry.com or the commercial short tandem repeat tests which are the markers your state and local prime labs use, wouldn't work. We've had to make them work with our type samples. And just to, just to remind people, you, you mentioned, uh, did you say customized medicine? Or just, I want to just remind people that we can imagine a future where you, the medicine you are prescribed knows about your entire DNA profile so that you can minimize side effects and have the medicine do exactly what it needs to do. We're not quite there yet, but from what you're saying, we're, we're on the doorsteps of this sort of thing. It, and it's being used. I mean, some of the new drugs that have come out for, say, pancreatic cancer yeah. has been based on that deep sequencing of um, multiple different types of pancreatic cancer. Oh, and mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and I, I will say, you know, uh, a family member um, of mine is the benefit of that those new drugs. Uh he was uh, he was a, a type three basically when you think about that, and is now in full remission because of the technology and the ability to look at multiple people very quickly and multiple different types of strains to personalize that medicine to help people out. Now, tell me, you know, I, I have rudimentary awareness and knowledge of of DNA. Uh, what does it mean to track mitochondrial DNA versus nuclear DNA? What what is going on there when you guys? Uh, uh, pick and choose what aspect of the molecule you care about. So it's very quick. Uh, so within your body, you have two types of DNA. Um, and I tell people to think of, uh, of a computer. The hard drive is like the nucleus within your cell. And that's 
that hard drive tells your computer what to do, the operating system and everything. That's like the nuclear DNA. And that's those 23 pairs of chromosomes. You get half from mom, half from dad. It tells you how fast you're going to go white. And if you're videotaping, I started going white at 25. Hmm. How tall you're going to be. I've and- been trying to go white my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> I think you mean gray. I think what? you mean gray. Don't <laughs> 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 so say, whoa, I didn't know people check. You know, Michael yeah. Jackson did that. Yeah. I well, otherwise. <laughs> so, and right. there's only one copy of that. Now, mm-hmm. the um, battery of your computer gives it the energy. Well, within your cells, you have mitochondrion. They are the energy producing organelles within, and that has its own DNA called mitochondrial DNA. And that actually only comes from the mother. Mother. And there's thousands of mitochondrial copies per cell to that one nuclear. And so where most labs focus on the nuclear DNA, we actually focus on both of those because it's about getting answers. We can use all of those to help include or exclude individuals to support identifications through the DPAA. Before we let you go, because we're going to continue this uh, with your uh, colleague, tell me, I've read that Neanderthal DNA, which, you know, we're now tens of thousands of years ago, is sometimes, and in some cases, easier to extract than some of the DNA you're obtaining. How is that even possible? That's a great question. So uh, Dr. Marshall, who's the head of my emerging technology, we, we've partnered with the Max Planck Institute. And we That'd took over Germany. some- of, In Germany, yep, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, so we took, uh, we partnered with them and took over some of our chemically treated and they do a lot of ancient DNA. But when you think about that Neanderthal DNA, a lot of it is found in caves that are very deep, very cold, very well preserved at that oh, point. Mm-hmm, and so- mm-hmm. When we did the extractions and we looked at the chemical damage and the amount of human DNA, in fact, we were equivalent in damage to 40, 35 to 40,000 year old Neanderthal DNA. Wow. But the 20 samples that we took over actually had less human DNA than the Neanderthal. And what we end up doing is we end up having a lot of bacterial DNA and we ha- we've had to figure out methods to enrich for the human DNA. So. I tell people to think the way we do that is, you know, when you're walking down the street, if you saw that silver dollar in the rain gutter, you could put a piece of gum on a stick and you could stick it down and pick up that. Well, we developed methods that allowed us to bind specifically the human DNA and then using those magnets, pull the human DNA out from the bacterial DNA. Mm. By so the way, I increase. just will let you know that uh, uh, we have too much money to be worried about a silver dollar in a drain. <laughs> Uh, I don't know about me. I, I, I would. I don't pick it up still. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were better paid than that, Tim. <laughs> Tim, we got to call it quits there. But thank you for joining us in this first of three segments really where we're exploring the efforts of the Department of Defense to to just do right by missing soldiers and those who are otherwise unidentified. So, uh, Tim, Doctor McMahon, thanks for joining us on Star Talk. Chuck and Neil, thanks very much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Um, And thanks for telling the story of our families and our fallen heroes. We guarantee this will be seen and heard far and wide. We'll make sure of it because we have power over the universe. (laughs) (laughs) The podverse. The the, the, The podcastiverse. The the podcastiverse. Up next, we're going to be joined by forensic anthropologist Franklin Damon, who will help us delve deeper into the forensic science of it all in the Department of Defense when Star Trek continues. (laughs) 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hi, I'm Chris Cohen from Haworth, New Jersey, and I support Star Talk on Patreon. Please enjoy this episode of Star Talk Radio with your and my favorite personal astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're back. Star Talk. We're talking about forensic science as applied to fallen soldiers in the Department of Defense of the United States of America. And we were introduced to this department I had never heard about, the DPAA. And we've got someone who is the deputy director of that laboratory, who is a forensic anthropologist, Dr. Franklin Damon. Dr. Damon, welcome to Star Talk. Thank you. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And in that first segment, I think you you might have eavesdropped on it. Uh, we made a quick mention of the USS Oklahoma. Could you just tell me, give me a little more details about what went on there? Because uh, I thought that they were going to leave the fallen sailors, uh, Navy personnel, entombed in the Oklahoma, and that itself would be the burial site. 
So when did that change, or did I not remember that correctly? No, you are correct. It has been a standard Navy policy uh, that uh, the ship goes down. That is their their final resting place is with the ship. You see that with USS Arizona as a memorial out of Pearl Harbor. Right. You know, the USS Oklahoma is a little bit different uh, in the sense that uh, for four years after that ship capsized, uh, there were salvage operations. So salvage divers would go in under, underwater into the ship, trying to find what they could. What they could find, they buried in one of two temporary cemeteries. It was the policy at the time that we're not, the government is not going to fight a global war and also identify and repatriate the fallen soldier to the, to the, to the families. That would take place after the war. And so at the conclusion of World War II, those two temporary cemeteries were exhumed and there was a laboratory, a central identification laboratory out at Schofield Barracks in, uh, in Hawaii, where they attempted to uh, segregate these remains, right? It's dark and the ship is capsized. There's oil everywhere. They're just moving by, by feel to try to find what they can find. Wait, just to be clear, Second World War was a segregated army. <laughs> so the way you're using the word throws me a little bit. You meant, dis- you, you meant separate out the remains from other things that could contaminate the remains. Just that is correct. Here, here we have uh, 429 sailors and Marines that died on that ship. Mm-hmm. And after four years, uh-huh. there were what became skeletonized remains became commingled is the word that we use, mixed with one another. There you go. There you go. Oh. And, and that cemetery, was it known in advance that you would exhume what was buried there? Well, no. So the, they did their best to identify what they could. Identified 35 service members at that time. So can you, before you go any further, uh, because when, we, when you talk about the forensics of it, what is the um, kind of like regular uh, investigative identification? How, how's that done? Because 35, what makes you, if you're saying there's this commingling, how do you know that this 35 is indeed the 35? That's an excellent question. You're picking up on some of us here. There's, um, you know, those 35 IDs were made by dental comparison. So each of these service members has a medical history, has a medical file. And it's really kind of important to understand throughout any of our identification effort is we can be the best forensic anthropologist. Tim can hire the best molecular biologist in his lab, right? Where you can squeeze DNA out of a, out of a bone and pull it out with a magnet. But unless they have something to compare it to, if I have a dental pattern and a set of remains, I need that anti-mortem, that, that in living, you know, you go to the dentist and they record your, your, your restorations, your decay. That's what I need to compare to the remains to make an ID. And those 35 were all dental identifications. Yeah, if, I can, if I can say something more fundamental, even just fundamental about science, when we make any measurement in the universe, we need reference standards against them. Otherwise, it's just, it's just floating data with no way to even think about it or to interpret it. So I think it's a way more fundamental re, uh, reality in doing science than even just in this application. And that, and that is foundational across all of what we do in this mission, right? We know what we know about a population biology approach, right? I know that if I measure a bone, this bone can tell me how tall a person was because I have a reference data set of people that I know in life how tall they were, and I know their bone measurements, right? So it's kind of a juxtaposition of knowing the population biology, 
and then layering in all of these different data points to then tease out what is an individual from a population. So that's the anthropologist in you, right? It is indeed. Yeah, yeah. And so, so just remind me again, just the military practice. Because the Oklahoma did not sink, it came under a different category from ships that do. Because these were buried in, uh, the, they ultimately ended up in the National Cemetery, the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific at Punchbowl in Hawaii. And because those were uh, in the cemetery, I think it made it a little easier to, uh, to justify. You also had one of the other really cool things about what we do in the government as scientists is it's the kind of the apply application of science to public, right? It's public science in a way, and that we're doing this to meet a policy. We're doing it to meet a statute or law. And, and here, when you have families, family groups that have demonstrated significant interest and desire to have these cases exhumed and analyzed and individually identified, I think carries a significant amount of weight in our, in our mission. Mm -hmm. Of course, definitely. And so... Uh, just to make, just to be clear, uh, missing in action um, is often the person is presumed dead, correct? So, but the but the family doesn't know for sure, and so even if they're confirmed dead, they want to be able to at least have some kind of ceremony or burial ritual to bring closure to this this unknown. Is is that a fair characterization of what? What role you're playing in this, in this, in this journey from soldier to memorial? I think that's absolutely fair. I think when you, it's in our mission statement when we say accounting for to account for a missing person, we're really we're talking about telling their story, like who is that person, and then providing that family the primary next of kin the information about their loss. I mean, even if we can't get ever to an identification of somebody that just not going to happen. We still have information and research that our historians have produced and investigations and multiple attempts and trying to do field archaeological recoveries. And all of that information is, is valuable to a family who's just looking for anything. So with, with respect to the story being told, and I hope this isn't too morose, is there any other information that the identification might be able to divulge as a part of that story? Like, I read something about Machu Picchu where, you know, they buried bones inside of these tombs, inside the mountain, and they pulled, they pulled the bones out and they realized that the diet of corn, like, rotted most people's teeth because it's, it's very high in sugar. But, I mean, is there, do there people want to know, like, you know, um, injuries. Chuck, Chuck, it was the candy bars in the machine <laughs> at, the, at the commissary. The, bending, <laughs> the, the, the one that came down. The, right, 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 down exactly. the, <laughs> that's that's yeah, like that's, a Gary Larson comic, actually. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. Um, but yes. are there any other stories that can oh, be told? Yeah, the, the, the forensic story, the cause of death, what... Right. Uh, yeah, sure. That's what I'm trying to say. The cause, those, mm -hmm. those, those uh, uh, markers. Yeah, so I think that's a really, uh, there's a really cool connection between uh, what our historians do and our researchers as they're looking into like who's missing. The over 80,000 that are missing from, from World War II to our wars in Iraq. 
They're the ones who are charged with doing the research to find out who they are, where were they last known to be alive, what, what information do we have about them. And a lot of the time, they're looking at primary source documentation, secondary source, so published books about engagements and battles. And when you can marry that information, the historical information, secondary source, against what comes through the lab, what is recovered, who gets identified. Maybe you're identifying a guy who historically was said they were way up north Right, and, and but yet their body was found, and we have proven the medical certainty that they were down here. You, in a way, can contribute to the re under to rewriting or understanding engagement, right? The battle and how the movements of people right, uh, right. and time and space. So, did, does this go back to the Civil War? Because a lot of battle, you know, a lot of burial sites and battlefields. Because they, I think that was just before they could move a dead body without it. You know, putrefying to to its home, back home, so you're buried on the spot. So that's is that part of the mission statement that you're undergoing here? Yeah. So our so the mission that's in statute, we're really looking from World War II to the Iraq Wars. But the 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 the, the logistics, like the moving a body, um, it had always been the policy up until the Korean War uh, that it was called uh, you know temporary interment, you know, bury that temporary cemetery after a war, we'd come back and, and exhume you and identify you. In fact, it was World War II, there was a massive program, it was called Return of the Dead program that picked up in 45. It was in fact a, a curator at a place you may have some familiarity with, the American Museum of Natural History, who received a letter from the quartermaster general of the army who was responsible and said, okay, now the war's over, I need help, I don't know what to do. Right. Oh, okay, okay. Interesting. Under invitation from the army, Harry Shapiro went over to Europe, uh, looked at some of the battlefields, looked at what was going on and said, you know, I think you need to hire a bunch of anthropologists. Mm -hmm. And so in Europe, they had European anthropologists working in Strasbourg and Hawaii. Uh, you had a fellow by the name of Charles Warren, who was one of the first anthropologists working for the government in fulfillment of this mission. So, so okay, so that's a reminder that when you're on the frontier of what is known and unknown, you have to sort of invent solutions that you, previous people hadn't thought of, right? And so it sounds so obvious today that of course you'd bring in anthropologists because they think about this stuff all the time. But in the service of these military projects, uh, that would have been a major a point of advance in terms of our understanding of what's necessary. It did, and and that policy changed as it was halfway through the Korean War. They realized, hell, we could do a much better job identifying these guys mm -hmm. if I got them mm -hmm. back to a mortuary sooner. Got it. And, gotcha. and so that's when you have these start up in Korea and and do concurrent return is the policy, and that's what we've been doing ever since. That's what takes place, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, what's the best if you were to rank environments in which, if you were to exhume a body, uh, it, it's like the best environment for full recovery? Is it the desert, is it the jungle, or the, tundra. Bogs, the, the tundra, is there, no, I, no I, I, let me answer, I know the best one, a glacier, <laughs> freeze you in a glacier. Oh yeah, <laughs> Iceman. <laughs> Iceman, that's the only one I know, but uh, any, anything else, you guys say, great, good news, they're in a bog, or whatever, so... What, what does an anthropologist say about it? Well, you're this? right in the sense that uh, you're looking for environments that don't change much. Right, you know, in the earlier segment, we talked about Neanderthal DNA. You heard about Neanderthal DNA in these caves, where, where it's 
where it's constant temperature, moisture, and that does well for preservation of organic material. Uh, one of the complicating factors in our mission is that um, we weren't necessarily fighting in bogs or glaciers. We do have cases that take us out to glaciers, aircraft losses, but a lot of them are, are um, airplane crashes and uh, skirmishes that take place in your, you know, the way in which the death event occurs has a significant impact on what we can actually recover. You know, if it's a Vietnam-era jet aircraft as opposed to uh, a tank loss or a ground loss in Europe in World War II. Mm -hmm. oh, well, that begs the question, what, what is the bare minimum that you would need in order to make an identification? Yeah, when we think of DNA, is it like a single strand? Is it, a, a, you know, a molecule? I mean, how many, you know, how many molecules, DNA molecules do you need? Most of our work does require DNA analysis. And if, a, if evidence comes into the lab and I have a large enough sample that I can submit, we will. And if it's successful, we can make an ID. And so right now we're shooting for at least a minimum of two grams of, of hard, compact cortical bone uh, that we can send. And just to remind people, two grams is not very much, right? That's like a tiny fraction of an ounce. That, that so, would, it's about the size of your, the, the end of your thumb. Wow. Yeah. Uh -huh. That's insane. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, if we, if we had a tooth, we'll pull the organic material from the inside of a tooth and send uh, just milligrams of, of powder. Right. And what is the best um, material to receive? Like the person walks in and dies on the spot, and then you can identify them. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and, and they have their wallet on them, and they tell you their name. And their ID, and, and their, their dog ID, tag. And their social security. Right. Then we, we good here. We, we right. good here. Uh-huh. Yeah, you want something that's been, that's been pretty well preserved, right? That's been in a pretty stable environment that has large enough samples that you can send uh, off for DNA. When you're talking about individual uh, bone types, a lot of it has to do with uh, the in-lab molecular techniques that they use to prepare bone. You want to make sure you remove as, as you know, bone is a living tissue, right? It's always, it's constantly turning over. It's constantly uh, changing and uh, it's porous. And so when it sits in the, the archaeological uh, context, it's taking on those things like you know, microbes and fungi and all kinds of other decomposers that are out there. And you want to be able to clean that off as best you can. And so usually we're talking about those hard, compact bone. So your, your femur, your upper leg bone, some of the uh, internal structures uh, of the cranium, your head, uh, tend to be uh, right around the ear, the inner ear area. Wow, okay. Cool. And that, now that you said that about the, the conditions, it just reminded me of the best place to gather that information. And I learned this from Neil, the moon. What are you talking about, the moon? Because you said that there are no microbes to actually oh, yeah, decompose yeah. a body. Correct, correct. That's right. <laughs> yeah, if you're in, if you're in a place that's not organic, there's nothing. There's no organic decomposition of you. Right. It'll just sort of stay there. It might you know, desiccate, but yeah, definitely. But I don't think the DoD is worried about bodies on the moon, Chuck. Uh, I mean, not saying. not according to my conspiracy theories. <laughs> <laughs> that means it's time to take a break. And when we get back, <laughs> when we get back more with Dr. Franklin Damon, and we'll get deeper into his lab and find out what are the methods, tools, and tactics that he engages on this edition, this military edition of Star Talk. 
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. We're back. Star Talk. I'm here with Chuck Nice. Still tweeting at Chuck Nice Comic? Chuck? Yes, thank you, sir. Yeah, and I noticed that your uh, Brain Games uh, series dropped on uh, Nat Geo Channel. And yes. actually, that's you find that through Disney, I guess, correct? Because Disney, Disney, Disney bought Disney, Disney knows owns everything. So just go to Disney, you'll find whatever yeah. you're looking for. And now they own me. <laughs> All right. All right. I've caught I'm, 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 I'm slowly binging them, if that's possible. Um, but it's always good to see what our human shortcomings are in our capacity to think and interpret reality that's sitting blatantly in front of us. So yeah, I've always I'm just enjoyed the guy to bring you that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to know shortcomings? That's where I'm a Viking. <laughs> uh, well, we, in this episode, we're talking about the challenges and the triumphs of identifying fallen heroes who who were unknown, who we only have fragments of their bodies, uh, DNA perhaps, but not always. And we've got Dr. Franklin Damon. Uh, who works for the Defense Prisoner of War and Missing in Action Accounting Agency. And so, so Dr. Franklin, could you just walk us through the, the bureaucratic sequence of what happens before a loved one or a family member is notified of your success? I certainly can do. And it's, uh, it, you know, the 80,000 who are missing uh, from World War II to the wars in Iraq, um, there are a couple of ways in which we find evidence and get it into the laboratory. Really, it starts with our uh, model as uh, researchers and analysts go find out who's missing. That launches a team out to do an investigation, talk to witnesses. Hey, what did you, what do you know? Did you see a plane crash here 30, 40 years wow. ago? Uh, yeah, it's right here. Uh, that leads into either an excavation of a site if you're out in the jungle somewhere on the side of the Asha Valley in Vietnam, or if you're uh, looking into remains that the government already owns in a national cemetery somewhere across Europe where they were recovered, they attempted ID, but they couldn't do an ID. So they're buried as under a headstone that says unknown. We have all of those records. And what can we do today with our science today to put a name to that set of remains? Once that happens, it comes into the laboratory, and that's when our, our um, laboratory procedures take place. We have a lab out in Hawaii, our main lab in Hawaii. We have one here in Nebraska, and we've got about 150 uh, staff working this, this mission. And everything from anthropologists and dentists, data scientists, uh, forensic chemists, uh, doing the work to uh, combine as much information as possible about a set of remains so that our group of case coordinators can look at who's missing and try to match up that postmortem information that's collected, what we call in the blind. Right? So they know nothing about a case as it comes in. And they just look at the evidence and produce their report and their information. And then another set of people look at it and match it up against who's missing. And that's when our medical examiner says, yes, everything matches up and this is this person beyond any other reasonable possibility. And, and you get, you get the, the 
military person that goes to the door and rings the bell, I mean, that we see in movies. I mean, how do you, how do, how do you notify the kin, the kinfolk? Once the medical examiner makes the identification, that notification goes to the respective service casualty officer. So if it's Army, goes to Army. Navy goes Navy. That service casualty officer, in turn, is the responsible party for communicating to the family. Uh, within 24, 48 hours, they'll initiate a phone call to say, hey, we now have identified the remains um, of your relative. And that then leads into a series of conversations about, you know, where they're going to be buried, when they want to be buried, um, and and everything kind of is back-planned from there. So this is like one of the most collaborative projects I've ever heard of in any in anything. I mean, just from the chemist, the biologist, the medical doctor, like you said, the dentist, the anthropologist, and and the historians. This is a this is a brilliant use of academic resources. And as an academic, fundamentally, I, I, I think this is a beautiful. Uh, beautiful reality you have created. Yeah, the only thing that's missing is uh, David Caruso from CSI Miami. No, but no, I, what he's saying is way harder than anything CSI has ever had to tackle. I'm looking oh, at CSI now. Oh, you all got it easy. Let me change channels. You, you guys make this. Uh, they CSI should have their own Miami. TV show. No, right. we need the DPA that's TV what it show. Is. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's yeah, CSI is like the romper room of what you no. <laughs> Romper room. Those guys are like, they're like kindergarten. <laughs> Yeah, we got the body. It was shot right here on this street right. corner. You know, I got, what do we have on these guys? Yeah. You look military. at these guys, and you're like, what do you want, a cookie? God, <laughs> everything was already done for you. Yeah. Right? It's called, we call it the CSI effect, right? That's actually a real thing that we contend with and talking to families and trying to get them to understand that sometimes it's not always so easy. It doesn't happen in the 45 minutes. And there are no commercial breaks. So, the, so people are actually biased by the fact that they watch this kind of representation of the science and technology play out in this tiny little short period of time. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. believe so. Wow. That and everybody and everybody's young and good looking and you know the whole thing is what, what, what are aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> that one was too that was too easy. <laughs> that was too easy. Um, so so I'm intrigued by what role the, the moving frontier of AI and, and machine learning and big data might play in your work because that's, that, that stuff changes weekly, right? And if you want to take full advantage of it, somebody in your office needs to be tracking that. So what role does that play now and what role do you see that can play for the future? Yeah, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of it, and I think it's going to be huge for us as we continue to move forward. Uh, really, right now, we're just doing very simple, simple what I call simple AI, I think it's referred to normally, where we're just looking to automate boring tasks that you would normally have an anthro. You know, I've got a board-certified forensic anthropologist that's working, and if they're spending a lot of their time just messing around with an Excel spreadsheet and playing with data, you know, that's not that's not really living up to their what they went to school for. And it's my job to put them in front of the bench on the table working with the remains. And I can have my data scientists work with these spreadsheets to automate some of the work. An example of what we've done, um, we've talked about the USS Oklahoma. When those, uh, I think there were 62 graves that were exhumed and they came here into the laboratory, uh, first thing we do is a full inventory. So that's just right out every bone that comes in. We had over 13,000 individual bone specimens that came into the lab that we needed to segregate into individuals from a commingled assemblage um, back into you know what is one person. When I got here in 2015, um, 
we were walking around with clipboards and a uh, government skillcraft pen collecting the you know our inventory, which made it awfully difficult to do any downstream work with. And so through our partnership initiative that DPAA has allowed to do, uh, we worked with the University of Nebraska at Ohio and the College of Information Science and Technology and built a database that allows us to multiple users use it. We've got, we, we've got standards. Uh, it's cloud-based. Uh, the data that goes in gets peer-reviewed within the system. And there, you know, it's, uh, we've got security layers over the top of it. And uh, the nice part is because it's standardized, we can then work with the data in a very simplified way where I can search and filter and start looking at pulling that data out and say, take all of my 13,000 that are in this space and put them in this graphical space. And then let me look at relationships and associations between left bones and right bones. Right, and if I take right, my right. standard measurements across one bone, we're all pretty bi, uh, pretty symmetrical, right? Bilaterally, left to right, we're all as humans. We're, we're pretty symmetrical on the on uh, the outside, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But mostly on the inside too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mostly. But yeah, you have one pancreas and one liver, you know, right? Yeah, and, and one heart. But yeah, right, yeah, otherwise, right, right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we can look at uh, automating the comparison. So if I have traditionally, if I'm looking at an upper arm bone onto the left, I need to compare it to 300 rights. I mean, that's, I have to do that like one to 300, but I have to do it 300 times because I got 300 lefts to go at. And it takes an analyst like a full week to do that work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if I have the measurements and I can run them through my automation uh, software, I can focus on the tails, the people that are excluded, right? And just focus on those 20 and my analysts can do those in a morning. But we also are moving into 3D technology, surface scanning, looking at, you know, everything so far is just two-dimensional measurements, looking at linear measurements. But now we're looking at uh, actual surface models. Volumetric, yeah, yeah excellent. Yeah, so, and what is the clavicle method? I read about that. Yeah, what so that's that? something, you know, we're looking at x-ray comparisons. That's all we're doing. We're looking at post-mortem, after death, to pre-antemortem, before-death images. And much like you go to the dentist and you would have a dental x-ray we have the same thing from these service members, except they're not teeth or clavicles or your collarbone. Right? We have uh, service members in the 40s and 50s would uh, show up to these medical clinics and have chest x-rays taken to look for tuberculosis. Right? Are you fit for oh, service? Oh, so the, you, got the, you got the clavicle for free So we've got out, the, out, of, out of that data set. So oh, here's, our, here's our massive data set of anti-mortem chest radiographs that we have access to. And not only do we have access to them, because it's the military, there's a very particular technical manual that defines how you're supposed to take that image. So you know exactly how far they are away from you know the subject wow. from the capture device, how they're standing, all of that information, and we can recreate that. So we go out and we exhume an unknown. We have uh, the the bones of the neck and we have the collarbones, and we can position them into uh, a couple of different triage uh, or a couple of different positions, and we can take an X-ray. And then what we do is we take the x-ray against maybe our list of five people we think it could be, and we start looking for pattern matches, right? I'm looking at the, the densities, the, um, the opac- opacity within the x-ray itself to see where am I finding or excluding someone from, from that match to the remains. 
okay, this sounds like the, you know, we already have face recognition software. So now we just need clavicle recognition software. <laughs> and then you can automate that, you know, just we, fine. We have part of the original uh, research development was to look at all of these anti-mortem x-rays and look at how unique the shape is. Just the shape of the shaft of the clavicle, not even the, the part where Didn't it comes in. Didn't know that. Didn't know that. And oh that God. and that is, an, we can run an automated search that returns, you know, your top 10 hit list of like who, who this possibly could be based off of the shape of your clavicle. Now, the clavicle is not the strongest bone in the body. In fact, yeah. I, I, I used to wrestle, and in high school, I actually broke a guy's collarbone. Um, oh. I took him down in a, in, a, wow. in a takedown pin. There's some takedowns that are also a pin maneuver when you, oh, hit, yeah. when you hit the mat. And well, well, what high school did you go to? Cobra Kai? <laughs> no, Cobra Kai Holy High School. Crap. No. <laughs> Sweep the leg. Sweep the, Sweep the leg. <laughs> no, no. But but by God, when it cracked, the whole room heard it. It was like, there it is in his body. And it was like, <clears throat> and it was like oh my gosh, like what just happened? So so but I so I have this 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 relationship to the collarbone that I didn't really want to have. So that's why I'm a little more sensitive to what you're describing for it. Yeah, you think but. you're sensitive. You should see the guy you broke his <laughs> <laughs> no. Having broke my own once as a child, I, it's not a fun experience now. Oh. Right, yeah. right. Mm, mm, mm. Well, so we got to land this plane safely, uh, I, I hope. Can you tell us um, what can we expect in the next five years, 10 years, based on your crystal ball read of the science, the direction science is going, and um, and also geopolitical cooperation in this exercise seems to be paramount. Yeah, two totally different questions there. I'll, uh, I'll hit the innovation one first and where we're going. Uh, I think uh, the biggest thing that we've got doing, going on right now in our research area and what we're looking to validate is uh, the use of uh, stable isotopes as tracers. You know, and this is, uh, you know, we're looking primarily at uh, carbon, carbon 12, 13, looking at uh, ratios um, that we're finding in remains in order to differentiate on whether somebody is of a possible U.S. origin or, uh, or not. And is this something that I need to, to send off to, to uh, Dr. McMahon and Afdil to, to run a DNA sample, or is it one that we need to be concerned about because it's not part of our mission set? By the way, in my field, isotope ratios are everything. When we have, when we have a rock, a, a, a meteorite that doesn't match other meteorites in the asteroid belt that we, have, we can trace them to, and someone went into a pocket of air inside of it and noticed that the isotope ratios of the gas equaled the, what you find in the atmosphere of Mars— and it became the first unambiguously Martian-identified um, uh, meteorite because of isotope ratios. So I, my, my people know full well the power of isotope ratios. So the power to you as you bring that to your field. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's all based on what you eat, right? What we figured out many years ago, the chemists and the C3, C4 plants and, and how the carbons are being incorporated. Um, well, one question I have for you, everything that we're, we're doing here uh, is is tied to what is known in the ratios here on Earth. You know, and I guess your comment, um, what, are the, what do we know of the isotopic ratios of 12 and 13 and other stars or planets? Yeah, there, there's some places where there's only carbon-12, and carbon-13 is extremely rare. Uh, but in your case, there are other isotope ratios that changed in the era of, of nuclear weaponry. Correct. So, so if you were in a place and a time 
there's certain in your bones and your calcium there you have different ratios than if you were in a different place at a different time so plus it's glowing <laughs> and, and the first first indication you were at a nuclear bomb test <laughs> and and that's how we're using them as tracers exactly yeah <laughs> um no so wow so that's a that's a very fertile field this sounds like you're just beginning to to tap into so uh so how about there now tell me just uh, geopolitically how this how that works? Our mission requires that we interface with other nations. Um, there are about 46, 50 different nations that we deal with and work with. I shouldn't say deal with, but we have proper cooperative relationship on a daily basis. Um, you know, and I think that's, you know, part of our, our mission set that doesn't really get mentioned of much is the geopolitical yes. relationships yes. Uh, that, that we are able to establish through this mission. Um, in fact, it was um, uh, one of our, our former former presidents and his interactions uh, with North Korea and the four points that were raised. Uh, the fourth, fourth point there was this mission and turning over uh, remains of missing U.S. service members uh, that were in the possession of the North Koreans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is, this is hopeful. And plus what it tells us is even where, where relations might be tense— there's a deeper humanity in what it is you do that perhaps you, we'd like to believe at least uh, permeates all nations of the world. Yeah, that's, uh, I like to think of it as, as exactly in those terms, right? That I, I'm a human, we're all humans, we all have basic core needs and beliefs. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a son, I'm a husband, I'm a, I'm a brother, and, and so are they, and so are the folks that we, we talk to and work with, and it makes it uh, easy to understand, I think. Well, Dr. Damon, it's been an honor to have you on this program representing such an important uh, branch of what is going on at the Department of Defense that, that hardly anybody knows about. I mean, I, I didn't know about it, but I don't know that I should be my representative, I don't know, of, of the knowledge base of Americans and of this world, but uh, to the extent that we could uh, get people to see and hear this podcast, we will do it. I've and always been a big fan. Likewise. <laughs> 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 All right, uh, Dr. Franklin Damon, thank you for your time. And how do we find out more about your, is there a webpage that we can go to for the D DPAA? Absolutely. Uh, dpaa.mil, and we also have a, a page on Facebook, uh, a new Twitter uh, account as well. But not yet TikTok. Okay, you got to work on that. <laughs> get, the, get the youngins involved. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll call your people. We'll, we'll figure out what, what we can do there. Excellent. All right. Uh, again, thank you, Dr. Damon. Uh, Chuck, nice. Always good to have you, man. Always a pleasure. All right. I am Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. As always, bidding you to keep looking up.